We are headed toward the book of Ruth. That's why we did a four-week overview of the book of Judges, because Ruth takes time takes place during the time of the Judges. So we looked at, um, did an overview of Judges, and we're headed toward Ruth, but um, when Reformation Sunday and the actual Reformation Day align like it is today, you're required to do a Reformation sermon. It's written somewhere that you must do that. So what is Reformation Day? Some of you grew up in churches um, that once a year celebrated Reformation Sunday. Others of you are like, what is that? I have no idea. Well, it's the day that Protestants remember um, that, that 504 years ago, in the year 1517, uh, a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther, he wrote out 95 uh, reforms and, and issues that uh, were the church he felt had, had gotten off the rails. And uh, back then they didn't have Twitter. So what you did was you, you used the church door as kind of the bulletin board. So he nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. We've been there, right? Stood outside the door. Um, now, what's interesting is prior to Luther, there had been people who raised the same object, uh, objections. In fact, I think last year, I did a sermon on a guy named Peter of Waldo, and he lived in the 1100s, and he basically raised the same concerns that Luther raised, but the difference between Peter Waldo and Luther is this. Luther lived in a time when the printing press had been invented. So his writings went viral, so to speak, through the printing press. So his writings calling for the church to reform. No, he, he never set out to split from the church. He just wanted the church to reform its corrupt ways. And uh, his, his writings led to several debates, several theological debates uh, between Luther and some other Roman Catholic uh, scholars. And then it all came to a head at a trial where Luther was put on trial in Worms, Worms, Germany, where he was asked to renounce his writings. He said, I can't recant, can't recant. And that was the beginning of Protestantism, which has then subdivided into other branches. Now, the issues that came out of the Reformation can be summed up with the five solas, all right? Out of uh, the Reformation, the Reformers stood on these five things. Sola Scriptura, that Scripture, not church councils and declarations by the Pope, but Scripture, scripture alone is the only ultimate authority. Okay? Not that there aren't other authorities, but it's the only ultimate authority under which all other authorities must 
uh, bow. Right? So sola scriptura came out of the, the Reformation clash. Sola gratia, sola, that, that's by grace alone. We are saved, we are justified by the grace of God alone through faith alone, sola fide. And our faith is in Christ alone, solus Christus. And it all results in all the glory going to God alone, sola de gloria. All right? So those are the five solas of the Reformation. Now, in the past, I've, I've well, every Sunday, uh, I talk about sola fide, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Okay? We've also looked at a number of reformers like Peter of Waldo and Luther and Calvin and Wycliffe. Uh, and so, so different reformers. So today what I want to do is focus on sola scriptura, right? That uh, scripture alone, now like I said, scripture, sola, sola scriptura doesn't mean that there are no other authorities. And it doesn't even mean that it should be just you and your Bible under a tree. You are, it is perfectly fine, in fact, helpful to read other writings, to look at creeds, to look at Luther's writings, to look at Calvin's writings, to look at early church fathers. But sola scriptura means there is only one ultimate authority. And that ultimate authority is inspired by God, the scriptures, and it judges all other authorities. That's what sola scriptura means. Now, Satan knows that if he can get his people to question the words of God, all is lost. Which is why, from the beginning, Satan has always attacked God's word. Right? In the garden, what did Satan do? He slithered up to Adam and Eve and said, Did God really say... No, that's not right. So his first attack and his first temptation was attacking the accuracy of the Word of God. Now, um, here's, here's how we can be wise to him. There are four attributes of Scripture. Okay, Theologians would categorize Scripture as having four attributes. Satan attacks those different attributes at different times and at different ways. Okay? The four attributes are, are, are these. The, the accuracy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, and the clarity of Scripture. We'll go, we'll go through each one of those. But um, if, he, if he can't get you to doubt one, he'll attack another one. All right. So let, let, me, let me show you what I mean. For example, we're going to start with the accuracy of Scripture. Okay. Now, if, you were to, uh, if we were to go out and take surveys, if we were to get clipboards and ask people, man on the street, what do you think of the Bible? I think most people would say, well, it's a good book. It's read in church. It's quoted all the time. But come on, it's got a lot of contradictions, a lot of fairy tales. 
a lot of scientific and historical errors, and it's been changed over time. But it's a good book. I think that that's what most people think of the Bible. Okay? Full of contradictions, full of historical errors, full of uh, contradictions, and it's been changed. Let's, let's talk about those. Let's start with the idea that it's been changed. You know, a lot of people think um, the way the Bible has been preserved over time is like the game of telephone, where if I whisper into Christine's ear something like, the Bears are going to lose today, right? And then she whispers to Barb, and then Barb whispers, and, we, and, it, and by the time it gets here, it's there's Bears invading the jewel, or you know, something, something like that, okay? So it, it, it gets changed over time. That's the idea that most people have about the Bible. That's an inaccurate view. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't get changed over time like that. In fact, let me just give you some, some interesting statistics. Before the printing press, the Bible was hand-copied, right? We have 25,000 manuscripts of handwritten copies. 5,800 are Greek. Now, not all of them are complete New Testaments, so I'm talking about the New Testament now. Not all, all 5,800 are complete um, New Testaments with maps and concordance in the back. Okay, Some of them are fragments. Right? But the Bible was written in Greek. We don't have the original. You know why we don't have the original? We would worship it. We would bow down before it. So God saw to it that we don't have the original, but we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts, we have 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in other languages. Now, it's, it's, mo it, it's the most well-documented piece of literature from antiquity. If you say it has not been preserved accurately over time, if you throw it out, you have to throw out everything else um, from antiquity. Plato and Homer and, and so forth, okay? Now, you say, oh, so, it, so we can go back and, and look at these manuscripts. Do they all agree? Nope, they do not all agree. There are differences, and those differences are called variants. You go, oh, well, if they don't all agree, all is lost. Well, not really. Um, there's a, some of you use this website. It's called Got Questions. They, they, they ask thousands of questions about Christianity and the Bible, and here they sum, this, they sum this up very well. The vast majority of these differences, of these variants, are simple spelling variants, akin to American neighbor versus British neighbor. You know, those British have really screwed up the language, haven't they? <laughs> uh, so there's, there's spelling differences, Inverted word order, like one, one manuscript says Christ Jesus, the other one says Jesus Christ. Not a big difference. Or an easily identified missing word. Okay, This manuscript doesn't have that word, but these other thousand do. Hmm, looks like that word is missing. In short, over 99% of the biblical text is not questioned. 
Of the less than 1% of the text that is in question, no doctrinal teaching or command is jeopardized. In other words, the copies of the Bible we have today are pure. The Bible has not been corrupted, altered, edited, revised, or tampered with. Okay? So lose the idea of the telephone game. It's more um, thousands of ancient manuscripts, the most well-documented piece of literature from antiquity, we, can, we have a science called textual criticism that, that where scholars study this, and we have um, recaptured the original. Okay? Now, that's transmission of the text. The objection that a lot of pa- uh, people have is, but, but the Bible's full of contradictions. Now, here's, here's my response to that. I think the Bible's full of apparent contradictions. Such as, let me, let me give you an example. Um, in Mark and Matthew's Gospel, at the tomb of Jesus, one angel is written about. In Luke and John, two angels are written about. In Mark and Luke, Jesus casts the legion of demons out of one man. In Matthew, there's two men in the tombs. In Mark and Luke, Jesus heals the one blind man in Jericho. In Matthew, there are two blind men. See, full of contradictions, right? No. If there were two angels at the tomb and two blind men in Jericho and two men in the tombs, then guess what? There was also one. And the author just chose to focus on that one. That's not a contradiction. That's the author's prerogative to focus on the thing that he wants to focus on. But that's not a contradiction. So there's a lot of things like that, that if you work, uh, work at it, you go, oh, I can see how that works. You know, Judas, is, it's said that he went out and hung himself. In the book of Acts, it said he fell headlong on a field and his, his guts burst out. Now, which was it? Did he hang himself or did he fall into a field? What if he hung himself and the rope broke? See, see how that works? That's not, that's not a contradiction. Now, a lot of people say, well, the Bible's full of errors, And what they mean is it's full of impossible things. Like a man being swallowed by a whale and living. Okay? But don't call that an error. What what that is, is a report of something out of the normal, out of the natural. Something supernatural. That's called a miracle. Okay? But if there's a God wouldn't we expect miracles? So some people read the Bible, they read about the miracles, and they go, scientifically, that's not possible. It's a, it's a fairy tale. Wait a minute. If God, then miracles. If not God, then not miracles. If you have a naturalistic mindset, no God, no supernatural, then of course the Bible's full of fairy tales. If you have a supernatural view that there is a God who intervenes in, in, in history and does 
things that don't make sense, like walk on water and multiply fish and loaves and feed people and raise people from the dead. What's so hard about that? Right? But I think a lot of people point to the miracles as errors. Okay? Now, um, let me, uh, along the lines of, of criticisms when it comes to scientific facts, people say, well, the Bible has made a lot of scientific errors. And I would say the Bible is allowed to use what, what you would call phenomenological language to describe things. For example, the Bible talks about the sun crossing the sky, sunrise, sunset. See, that's an error. We know that the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. It's the earth spinning on its axis. Or, uh, a- axis. Um, it's not the sun rising and setting. Well, you know what? I looked online today at the weather, the high of 51, a low of 38, and at 548, guess what's going to happen? Sunset. Does that, does that mean that weather people today believe that the sun is what? No, we use phenomenological language. It's what it looks like. If we're allowed to use that in the weather report, why can't the Bible use that? Now, some people say, but didn't the church condemn Galileo and said that he was wrong? Yes. But saying the church erred is not the same thing as saying Scripture erred. The church didn't get the whole phenomenological language thing. So we have to allow for phenomenological language. So all that is under the category of uh, the accuracy of scripture satan is always bringing up just turn on the discovery channel or uh, some of those uh, some of the other channels where they're questioning this about the bible and this about the bible and that about the bible Uh, there's always the question of the accuracy of the bible here's here's the bottom line if it is god's word and it is god don't make mistakes okay now um let's talk about the second attribute of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, this was the issue back in Martin Luther's day. Okay? Um, in fact, what brought the whole thing to a head was the church was selling salvation. You could buy an indulgence. An indulgence was a piece of paper that you bought that got your relatives out of purgatory. Okay? And uh, Luther said, that's not, that's not true. So the debate started out asking, who do you think you are, Luther, to question the authority of the church? So then the issue was, well, what's the ultimate authority? All right. Luther said, Scripture alone is inspired and infallible. And the church's teachings and traditions can be corrected by Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. The church came back and said, no, 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 no. We have three equal 
authorities. Scripture, sacred tradition, and the teaching magisterium of the church. The, what the Pope declares or what, what the church officially declares as true. So there are three, a three-legged stool of authorities that we look to. Okay? So you go, what, what's the difference between, say, a Protestant church and a Catholic church? Well, here's just, just a number of things. First of all, um, papal infallibility. They would teach that the Pope, when he declares something to be true, in an official declaration from the chair, okay, that's uh, ex cathedra, from the, the chair, it's, it has the same authority as Scripture itself. We don't buy it. The office of Pope himself. Protestants don't believe that there is an office of Pope. How about this? The number of books in the Bible. Protestants say there are 66 inspired books in the Bible. How many do Catholics say are in the Bible? Anybody know? Come on, shout it out. Barb says 104. What, who, what was the other one? 73. 73, yep. I always say if you're going to buy a Bible, get a Catholic Bible, you get more books for your money. No, I do not say that. I do not say that, okay? <laughs> uh, the veneration. <laughs> that's, that's a problem when you're a cheapskate. It's like a value, value deal. No. Um, <laughs> the veneration and prayers to the saints and Mary. Okay. Purgatory. And... Justification itself. Is it by faith alone or not by faith alone? So there are some major differences. And, and we would say that Scripture alone is the ultimate and final infallible authority by which all other truth claims uh, need to be judged. Now, um, look at this verse in Matthew twenty two twenty nine. The, uh, the Sadducees who did not believe in a future resurrection from the dead, they try to trap Jesus, and they come up with a scenario. Okay, you've heard me talk about this before. The scenario is this. Hey, Jesus, uh, here, here's a hypothetical. There's a woman married to a man, and he dies, and his brother is supposed to marry her to have children but the second guy dies and then the, then the third brother marries and this happens seven times whose wife will she be in the resurrection that you believe in and jesus says this you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god and he goes on to say there's no marriage in the next life okay but what I want you to see here is a, a religious authoritative group, the Sadducees, who were on the Sanhedrin and made up you know, the priesthood, they had a teaching. And they tell Jesus, you're wrong, and he says, you're wrong, based on the Scriptures. An example of sola scriptura. 
okay? Here's, here's a kind of way to sum it up. Adding other authorities to an ultimate authority alters the ultimate authority. Adding other authorities to an ultimate authority alters that ultimate authority. We would agree that the scriptures are infallible, but if you add supplemental authorities to that, guess what? Those supplemental authorities are going to alter that scripture. You're going to have Mary ascending into heaven. You're going to have purgatory. You're going to have different views of justification. Okay? I'll give you my, my other illustration that I'd like to give. Let's say you come over to the Smith house and we say, let's play a game and we're going to play, let's not play Monopoly. What's a game? Code games. Have you ever played code games? Code names. Code names. Say it again. Code names. Blue's Clues. Let's play Blue's Clues. No. Clue. Okay, we're going to play Clue. All right. So let's say we're in the middle of a heated game of Clue. And a debate breaks out about a rule. And uh, the, we, there's a little, little manual in, in the book. Milton Bradley. Was it Milton Bradley? I don't know. And we start reading it, uh, or you start reading it, and you go, see, you're wrong, and we go, wait a minute, Smith House, we have our own set of house rules, and I open a drawer and pull out some house rules that we play by. Well, now we have to debate the question, which authority do we go by, right? So that's the same thing with this. If you add authorities to the scriptures, it's going to change your view of truth. So Luther said sola scriptura. Scripture is not our only authority. It's the final authority by which all other authorities must be judged. Let me touch on another one called the necessity of scripture. All right. the necessity of Scripture is this. You know, Scripture itself admits that you can know God exists without Scripture. Romans 1.20. Just look around, look at stuff. You can see stuff. Where did it come from? There must be a God who created it. And you can tell some things about that God. He's pretty awesome. He's powerful. He's brilliant. He's eternal. There has to be an eternal person for, for something to exist, there has to be an e- eternal person. All right, so there's certain things you can know about God without the Bible. But other things which are true about God and salvation can't be known just through nature. You need special revelation. That's what, what Scripture is. It's, it's spoken revelation, written revelation, um, You can't know just by looking outside that God is a trinity of persons. That has to be revealed. You can't know that God has a son. You you can't know that He died on a cross to atone for our sin. That has to be revealed um, through Scripture, through special revelation. You, you can't know this, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That needed to be specially revealed to us. 
Now, follow this. Scripture reveals that from the beginning, God has always communicated special revelation to his creatures. He spoke directly in the garden. He spoke to Cain and Abel. He sent prophets to Israel. He sent angels to speak to people. And he had Israel collect a bunch of their prophets' writings, and that was the Old Testament, and he appointed his apostles to write more. That's the New Testament. Now, how do we know that this group of writings is the special revelation that God has given? And uh, without getting into too much apologetics, it boils down to this. There really was a person named Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody doubts that. Who, no historians doubt that. He died and he rose from the dead. And it was all according to the prophecies. And when you claim that you're the Messiah and you claim that you are the fulfillment of the prophecies and you claim you're going to die and you claim you're going to rise from the dead and you do, that's, that gives you authority. And Jesus accepted the books of the Hebrew Old Testament as God's word, and he appointed his apostles to write the New Testament. Okay? Now, that's, that's, how, that's how I know that the scriptures are the word of God. Now, one reason the necessity of the scriptures is rejected, okay, is because of the, I'm going to call it the ecumenical elephant in the room. What's that? Well, the assumption is it's just not fair for the truth to be found in one group and not in other religions. Okay, Even though Jesus did say salvation is from the Jews, and here Peter in, in Acts is saying there's salvation under no other name, okay, the, the assumption in so many people's minds is it's not fair if it's only located in one group of, of writings. So the parable of the elephant and the blind men has kind of become the paradigm that many people have adopted. You've, you've heard the story of uh, there's an elephant and seven blind men, and they all encounter the elephant, and one feels its leg and says, oh, an elephant is like a tree. And another one feels its tail and says, no, no, an elephant is like a snake. And another feels its side and goes, oh, an elephant is like a wall. And the author steps back and he says, there are, are many of these truths and they're all true, but you step back and you put them all together and you get the big picture. That's how many people, that's just the assumption that many people have. Christianity can't be true by itself. That wouldn't be fair. We're just touching one part of the elephant. Now, here's the problem with that parable. Two things are wrong with that parable. One, the author of the parable is claiming to be omniscient. He's claiming to see the big picture when everybody else just has a part 
Where did he get that special knowledge? So, so his parable contradicts his own point of view that he's got the big picture. You follow me there? Give me some signs of life. Yeah, okay, all right, all right. And then here's the second problem with the parable. It's a talking elephant. What if the elephant spoke to the blind man and said, I, this is the way I really am. And wh- why do we throw out the scriptures or just say it's describing the leg when the elephant himself has spoken? So, um, the, the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture is under attack just by the simple thought that it would be unfair if Christianity itself were true. But is that really true? All right, let me give you one last one. The clarity of Scripture and this is, where, um, th- this is where not only Scripture is under attack today, but communication is under attack today. Okay? Um, we live in postmodern times. You've heard me use that phrase before. What does postmodern mean? Well, postmodernism basically says this. We're so entrenched in our culture and our communities that people in other cultures and other communities really can't understand what we're trying to communicate. Now, there's some truth to that. In fact, all right, dare I use this illustration? Let's say y'all over here are Republicans and y'all over here are Democrats. Talk. (laughs) <laughs> you go, no, they can't, they don't understand what I'm saying. They're not listening. They don't, they're so locked into their worldview that we can't even communicate. So there's, a, there's some truth to the idea that people from different groups find it hard to communicate. Okay? So what postmodernism says is it's, that's true. So don't try to, let's not pretend that a text, whether it's the Bible or the Constitution, let's not pretend that it can be objectively um, interpreted. You're so biased in your community and your worldview that there's no such thing as objectivity. Therefore, don't even try. Just use it in your group to mean what it means to you. That's, that's what postmodernism is saying. And that's where we are today, where, you know, well, that's your truth. That's, uh, we, we've gone from what is the truth to is there truth, and you're, it's fine that you can have your truth and we can have our truth. And let's just try to coexist that way. Right? Now, um, let me give you, and, and by the way, people would point to the Reformation itself as proof. God gave us his Bible, and Martin Luther split the church. And then once he split the church and everybody tried to interpret the Bible on their their own, look at all the Protestant denominations. And we can't even agree on 
uh, on what is true. Okay? Let me give you four responses to the attack on the, it's called the clarity of Scripture. Now, um, theologians use the word the perspicuity of Scripture. You go, what? Well, the, the word perspicuity means clarity, which is funny because nobody knows what it means, right? Let's use a word that nobody knows what it means to talk about how clear things are, right? Um, four reasons why I think we cannot abandon the perspicuity of Scripture. One is this. God is omnipotent. What does that mean? Whatever God sets out to do, He can do. And God has intended to communicate with His creatures. He has intended to give a book to His people that can be translated over the ages into different languages and we, are, we can understand it enough to know the basics. To say we can't is to say God is not omnipotent. You see, my, my argument for the perspicuity of Scripture is not about Scripture, it's about God. If God is omnipotent and He intends to give us a book that we can understand, then guess what? We can understand it. That's the, ar- that's the first argument. The omnipotence of God tells us that Scripture is clear enough to understand. Let me give you a second argument. While it's true that we can be influenced by our subgroups and our cultures um, and, 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 and those, those influences do affect the way we interpret words, that's all true, at the same time, words work. And here's, here, here's my proof. The stop sign. You know what? There's a stop sign by our house. People stop at it. Now, if they don't, it's not because they don't understand what it means. It means it, it, they don't stop because they're texting and they hit Josh. Right? Thought I'd work that in there. Right? You didn't see that coming, did you? But do do you think that the guy who hit you was going, oh, I don't know what the word stop means. No. He knew what it meant. He just didn't do it. Right? Stop signs work. Bills in the mail work. Book here, how about this one? Postmodernists write books using words. And they're trying to argue with these words that words don't have meaning. I think they think words have meaning, okay? So, um, my, my second argument is stop signs. Okay? Third argument. Yes, there's different interpretations of lots of Scripture. But I think you will find an amazing amount of agreement amongst Christians who hold to two things. Sola Scriptura and the inspiration of Scripture. If you got together a bunch of theologians who first of all said this is the final authority. In other words, the reason, okay, here's a church on Main Street. If you go east, you hit a Catholic church. 
we're not going to agree, but we don't, we don't have the same presuppositions. We hold to sola scriptura. They hold to these other authorities. But if you say, hey, here's a church, and there's another one that holds to sola scriptura down the road, and we hold to the fact that scripture is inspired, you know what? We're going to have a lot more in common than that we disagree on. Okay? So if you hold to inspiration and sola scriptura, I think you're going to find a lot of agreement. All right? Fourth and final point, this. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, doesn't mean that everything in Scripture is as clear as everything else. It means God has made the essential things abundantly clear, and we are to interpret the cloudy in light of the clear. Okay, Even Peter, in 2 Peter, he goes, you know that Paul, he writes some things that are hard to understand. Doesn't that make you feel good? You ever been reading Paul and you go, what is he saying here? Peter goes, I don't know what he's... No, I think, I think Peter and Paul were on the same page. He's saying, some things are hard to understand. Try to, try to teach Romans 9, which I did last Wednesday. Okay? Um, so there's some things that are hard. But not everything is hard. Okay? And that which is essential is clear. And we interpret... The cloudy things in light of the clear. Uh, Augustine, or let me give you a cloudy thing. The cloudy thing here is 1 Corinthians 15, 29, where Paul is talking about the resurrection of Christ, therefore will be resurrected. And then one of his arguments is this. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What does that mean? being baptized on behalf of the dead. So I was listening to a lecture by D.A. Carson, and he said he's aware that there are 50 different interpretations of what baptism for the dead means. 50. And he goes, now, by comparing this verse to other scripture, he says I can pretty easily eliminate about 40 of them. But we don't know for sure what, what this means because we don't know what was going on in the Corinthian church. Now, does it matter? Is this, is, is this a life and death thing? No. No. But in the same chapter, Paul says, now let me go over the gospel, which is of first importance. This is of two billionth importance, this verse 29. But the gospel is of first importance. In fact, Augustine, 4th century, 3rd century, Augustine wrote this, The Holy Spirit therefore has generously planned Holy Scripture in such a way that the easier passages he in the easier passages He relieves our hunger. He feeds us by giving us the simple, basic stuff. In the more obscure, He drives away our pride. I don't know what this means. Okay, be humble. Practically nothing is dug out from those obscure texts which is not discovered to be said very plainly in another place. You interpret the cloudy in light of the clear. Okay? Now, let me just end with this. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you 
which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here he's saying, I'm going to remind you of what I taught you. You're being saved, and you've got to hold on to it. If you let go of it, guess what? You were never saved to begin with. That's what I think it means, okay? But that aside, that, even that's an interpretive thing. But now he says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance. E- even Scripture itself is waving a flag going, hey, this is important right here. This is a, this is a, a, a major interpretive, a major issue by which you need, you need to understand this and interpret everything else in light of this. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. There's the heart. All right? In accordance with the Scriptures. And this wasn't a, a one-off crazy event. It was all in line with that whole Old Testament trajectory. It all, all the Old Testament points to Christ dying for our sins. That He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Again, according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. Okay? I don't know of anybody who takes the Bible seriously, who says, I want to know what it means, who doesn't come away with, boy, there's some cloudy things in there that I don't understand. That Solomon, that Ecclesiastes guy, some of that stuff is hard to understand. But one thing is really clear. Christ died for our sins. He rose from the dead. You believe on Him to be saved. That's the core, and the rest is interpreted in light of that. Praise God for sola scriptura. All right, let's pray. Lord, what a, uh, what a great reminder of Your love for us, that You haven't left us wandering around in the dark, that You have spoken You're the talking elephant, so to speak, who tells us who you are, what is true. And Lord, we know Satan wants to attack the authority of Scripture, the accuracy of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Uh, But Lord, I pray that we would not give in to him and we would just continue reading it and studying it, um, speaking it to one another, building one another up with it. And thank you, Lord, that you have laid out very clearly the gospel. Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf for our sin. And in that we take our confidence. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.